The following audio session was recorded live at the 2017 Region 2 Convention in Costa Mesa, California. Please visit oar2.org for information about the 2018 convention in Sacramento and to get links for more convention recordings. Thank you for listening. My name is Helen, compulsive overeater. Welcome to the Shoot for the Stars workshop. This is about how the promises have come true through the 12 steps in Overeaters Anonymous. My name is Helen. I'm a compulsive overeater, and you're moderated for this workshop. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the urge to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we begin, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it is off, please check again. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded when sharing to speak your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. If there's press in the room, do not take any unauthorized pictures or identify anyone by using their full name. There will be audio recordings of this workshop, which you may order outside in the uh, foyer. The workshop will have speakers followed by an ask it basket, where you'll address questions that are either general or to a specific speaker. Um, The topic for this session is The Promises Come True. Um, We have two speakers here, each with over 30 years of abstinence and wonderful recovery. Um, Let's welcome Connie as our first speaker. Hi, I'm Connie, a very grateful recovering food. I came here very differently compared to most people. I actually came to this fellowship on a court card. I grew up in North Carolina, and I, we were so poor that we didn't have running water or electricity or any of that kind of stuff. And my family system was very different in that we didn't hug. We didn't say nice, sweet things to each other. We, um, if somebody hugged you, that meant you were going to be sexually molested or beat up. And it, it was... It was the South, and, and it was just a very, very different time. And so I believe that <clears throat> food, was very, food was very sparse, and, um, and I believe that I, that kind of life made me a compulsive eater. I, I don't know. I don't think any of us really know, but that's how I began. And I came out here to California and started working in factories, I could hardly read and write. School wasn't important back then. If, if it was time for crops, um, then that took priority the school. And so what happened was um, I bluffed a lot. I, I made it like I knew everything, and I didn't know Jack guys. I really didn't. And I finally got the first good job ever, and that was driving for RTD, which is 
a bus driver, and, and my route went from uh, East L.A. to South Central. And it was at night, and in order to do my job, and I was fearless, fearless, because California compared to where I was from was a whole different life. California was like, there was electricity. <laughs> you could flush toilets. You, you know, there were phones, the things that I had never even heard about. When you live way out and away from everything, I, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know how to have a bank account. I didn't know how to write a check. I didn't know anything. And somehow I landed my first job that for me it was like mom and dad and God. I had benefits. I had everything that I ever wanted. The challenge was that in order to take my shift, this was the 80s, and, and I started off my route. After I'd eaten all day long, I started off my with at least 30 to $40 worth of food. <clears throat> and, and when you're a bus driver, what happens is you're making change. Back then, you're shifting the... Uh, you, somebody relieves you. And I, I'm eating chips and salsa. I'm eating, I, I'm eating jelly donuts. I'm making change, and I'm giving you transfers with all that. About the same time, I, I had been in another fellowship for about four years before I came to this fellowship, and it happened to be a time when we were crashing buses. People were doing speed in order to drive the bus the hours that, that RTD wanted us to drive them. And I thought I was the best person in the world. I, I, re- I had no clue, no clue, guys, who I was. All I knew is that I was here to save the day. And I don't even know where that came from, just bluffing. I, I carried this big old um, big old purse. It had transfers in it, but it had everything for you to find a place. Because you'd get on my bus and you'd been beat up. And I'm not supposed to help you, right? So I found out all the homeless shelters, all the everything to fix you. Because I didn't need fixing. I knew everything, you know. And and so what happened is one day um, my my supervisor and the EAP, which stood for um, the Employees Assistance Program. So I'm sure in my magical thinking mind, because yes, I still have magical thinking, that they were going to have me, this four years clean person, run the EAP program to help everybody get clean and sober, right? Right? Instead, they gave me this court card, and back then I didn't know and I wasn't going to ask to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I said, what's that? What's that? And so... Um, in our inner group, it has all the steps and the traditions on the wall. And I looked at that and I said, hmm, I already did that, right? I already did that. I don't need that stuff. And worse, you guys cried. What the <laughs> F? How, how could you cry? Bunch of crybabies. Right? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't get it. And I went back to the EAP and I said, I don't think I need that program. And they said, well, 
your bosses say that you're busting out of uniforms. I would went from 135 to 220 when I got here. And so I was so sick of you guys that I was going to do it. I'd, I'd be out, done with this in a year. I would. I would. Because I knew everything. And uh, somebody came up to me and that told me that I needed a sponsor. Actually, it was the same person that I had, that I had um, called. And she asked me afterwards, what do I think? And I said, I don't think I have a choice, so I'm, I'll, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And we had the gray sheet. And I truly thought that I had to do everything perfectly. So from that time of coming in on, in 1982 on September the 2nd, I was going to do it perfectly. So I did. I followed the food pen perfectly. I lost all my weight, got back down to 132, and uh, did all the steps. And I wasn't going to hug you because, remember, in my family system, if somebody hugs you or, you know, holds your hands or any of that stuff, that it would, it would be different. And, and maybe and, – and so women would come up to me, and I would make sure I knew when to leave – I was going to leave as soon as before the hugging, and, and I went. And one day, this short little woman, and, and needless to tell you, I, I carried a Derringer. I never took off that RTD jacket because then you might could see how fat I was, right? And so this lady followed me out, and she said, you know, I think I need a hug. And I says... I looked her up and down like, don't you know who I am? And I kind of touched my Derringer. <laughs> it's a wonder they didn't throw me out, but you guys love me no matter what I did. And she said, well, again, I really need a hug. And I looked and I says, well, okay, I guess I could do it. And I hugged her. And what happened was it was the beginning of my getting this program, getting it. I allowed her to hug me, and something happened. I, I, I tell her this all the time. I still see her from time to time. And she woke me up. She woke that wounded child, the, the compulsive eater, the reason that I was eating, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I kind of became, maybe because I was so so mad. Back then we could smoke in the room and people would come up to me and said, would you mind putting out your cigarette? And I'd blow it in their face. I was not nice. I was not nice. And then there was another woman there that she would sit in the back and she would dare to eat like chocolate and ice cream. And so I'd sit by her. I would sit by her just even though I wouldn't do, I didn't want to break my food because then I'd have to begin again. And so it, it just was, uh, I like to call this program the civilization of Connie. It, it, it really was. It really, really was. It, it changed my entire life more than anything, more than church, more than God, more than anything. This program absolutely, absolutely um, changed my life. So fast forward to 1992, and... Um, my son was shot and killed by the L.A. Sheriff's Department. They shot him 22 times. They thought he had a gun. It just it, it, 
I went for like three or four days on that gray sheet. And then something happened, and I took that first compulsive look. food. And uh, it was on. It was on. It was on for five years. I went from 135 to 405. I went from... Um, I, I, I just it changed my entire... I was so... That, that I could not say anymore that I knew everything. I went from knowing everything in my head, but to not knowing anything. Didn't I, I literally was walking out in front of cars. I wanted to die, but I'm the oldest of eight, so I had to be strong. And truthfully, I think that if, if I hadn't went to food, that I would have been dead today. I would have killed myself because I already wanted to die. I just couldn't figure out how to not die <clears throat> without letting my family know that I did it on purpose. So um, I developed diabetes. They were going to cut off my feet. I'd never had any kind of health issues before that time. And so many people by that time, because I wasn't the same person, loved me so much that <clears throat> that they gathered money to send me to a treatment center in, um, in, in Arizona. And I had never, I was very enmeshed with my family. I still am a little enmeshed with my family. I just, uh, only I wasn't a nice big sister, but they loved me anyway. And, and so the people that went together to send me to that treatment center, they knew if they had a treatment center around here, around where I lived, that I would go, I would leave, I would leave. And they gave it to me at, uh, my birthday's right before Christmas, so they gave it to me as a Christmas and, and birthday. And I didn't want to take it. I tried to sell it. I tried to give them their money back, because didn't they know who I was now? Um, I was, I was ob obese. I hated myself. I... I hated the cops that shot my son. I hated everybody. I hated the reporters that said, how does it feel to lose your white child instead of a black child? I, I, it, was, it was a horrible system. It was a horrible time in, in many ways. And so on the fourth, right before the 4th of July, I, I send out this little post, office, post um, card every single year. Right before the, uh, right before Valentine's Day, and it says, "Don't forget to be your own sweetheart." Mm -hmm. And my sponsor pulled my covers about it, and she said, "Connie, when did they give you that that gift to go to the treatment center?" And I said, oh, "Right before my birthday." And she said, "You need to be your own sweetheart." and get in your car and go. And that this was back in in 97 and before cell phones and and we I I literally stopped at every gas station along the way. I had never been anywhere by myself with without a man, without a, my brothers and sisters, without anything. And so every step along the way I called and we said 
the serenity prayer over and over and over and over until I softened and got out of fear and kept going. And at that point, I had never, I knew about the big book, but at that point, I had never heard of OA literature. And something about, it, it, we had the 12 and 12 and the, the workbook, the OA workbook. And it was like, that's my language. I, I mean, even though I was in another fellowship too, that touched my core to, to I, I still today when I read it, when I do step work with somebody, I, I let people that I sponsor decide what, what they want to use. And and there, but there was something, especially that fourth step of doing it. And I had been in other fellowships, not just probably in five five different fellowships at that time. And I had literally done the twelve steps in all all of those. But there's something about that particular OA and twelve and twelve, and the questions that they ask and ask and ask, and questions that in all those other years that I'd never heard of. And and thought about, and it it absolutely changed my life. Like I I got the privilege of digging deeper, deeper than in all the other times that then I had done. And eventually, RTD still let me go, <laughs> and and I picketed them. I offered them. We could say this here. I offered them oral sex to get my job back because I was never going to have another job. Never going to have another job. Nobody was. There was only that job, and and I picketed. I did everything, everything to keep that job, not trusting that there will be another job for someone like me that could hardly read and write. And something happened when my son died. I had to be a social worker, a children's social worker. And, and that's a whole other long story about it. But, and, and so I went to school and I got an AA and then a BA and then a, um, a master's degree. And the way I did that, because remember, I know everything. So I started going to the West Covina Library where the kids part is upstairs. And whenever I would find out what school I, what I was going to be studying, I would go and ask them what would be the children's equivalent to that. And finally one day she said, well, how old is your daughter? And I said, and I told her the truth. I says, I'm the daughter. I'm the one that couldn't read and write. But I don't know why, but I just know I have to have this job. I have to have this job. I mean, I was like obsessed obsessed and um, and I, I took the test three even after I got my master's degree I took the test three times where I did my internship they offered me way more than RTD it was working with AIDS client way way more than any of that but I had to go to work there without knowing why without knowing why and um, and despite making maybe $25 an hour more than, than with the county, I still, I chose to do that. And what I realized 
when I went to work there is I was that wounded little girl, the, the girl that wasn't protected be, for all the different reasons. And, and I was also that mom that wasn't such a good mom because I raised my kids the way I raised, the way I was raised. And I also um, was this fabulous person that had evolved into a wonderful, kind, loving, sweetheart of a woman. And what I didn't realize, way back, see how God planned it way better than me, beyond the, wild, uh, the wildest dreams. All that time when I was gathering all those papers for homeless shelters, for recovery places, God was making a plan. He was giving me practice. That job that I thought would be the, the best job in my entire life, it, it became, it, it, it became me being the best social worker on the planet. <laughs> so much so that I retired a, a year next week, and they still want me to come back part-time. They'll do anything. Oh, they'll do anything. Thank you, Paula. Um, it just, uh, I, I got to go out and talk to women's groups. I'm very, uh, what they call a social activist. I've been doing that 50 years, 55 years next month. Because of all those things that I thought were horrible, that people, people like social workers like me, when, they, when I describe my life, they just, oh my God, how did you do that? And that's how I gained all that weight. That's how I gained all that weight, is people, including my sponsor, would come up to me, sit beside me at meetings and say, don't worry, of course you're eating. Of course you're eating. And what I needed to hear and what, what I tell people is how was that going to bring your kid back? How is that going to... If, if I would have killed myself back then, if I would have lost my feet, what, whatever, how did, that wouldn't have brought Charles back. It wouldn't. He would still be dead. So how is that helpful to each of us to tell somebody that we have to eat over something? Since, since that time, I lost another son. I lost a kid that um, I raised since she was three days old. Um, who was 17. I lost uh, my mom, my dad, had a brother commit suicide. I've had a, not including every seven minutes, a foster kid tries to, tries to kill herself, and many of them successfully. Can you believe when I write a report, they successfully committed suicide? How is that a success? But their goal was to commit suicide. And so, therefore, they successfully. So I still, now I don't know much of anything. All I know is that God always had a better time than I was. Apart from learning to go to school, thank you, is when I came, um, when I came into that other fellowship, there were no programs for women. I learned to not just read and write, I learned to write proposals. And way back in 1980, I wrote a proposal for a women's program in El Monte. Today, you can go there, and it will say Amstone Hall. I wanted to name it after my 
my son, but they had a different idea. And so I definitely have a life that you could write a book about all the blessings I've had. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm not sure I can do this. I'm real. I'm really not. Wow. Wow. God is good all the time. <laughs> wow. Okay, but that's not what I'm here to speak. So, I guess that's what I'll do. Um, Hi, everybody. My name is Chris, and I'm a compulsive overeater and vomiter. Hi, Chris. And um, March uh, 16th, I celebrated 37 years of abstinence from binge vomiting. I was 35 years old when I got here, and uh, I believed everything that people said to me. They said things like, I mean, I believed the ones who were working the program. I believed them when they said they had hope. I didn't have any. I was 35. I was puking 55,000 calories every day of my life. I wanted to die. Um, I didn't ever plan my suicide, but I um, certainly knew that if life was going to go on like this, I didn't want to be a part of it. Um, But you said what would work is daily disciplined action on the steps. And so I did just did what you told me. Um, Again, I was 35 years old. That makes me 72 today. And, uh, or right now, I wasn't 72 today. (laughs) Um, And uh, last night I had to leave early. I had to leave the opening early because my hearing aid batteries went out and I (laughs) I couldn't hear. And, you know, if anybody had told me that, I've been here longer now. I've been abstaining longer than I lived in the disease, and that's a miracle. It is truly a miracle. I haven't, I've spoken a lot in this last 37 years at retreats and conventions and conferences. You do? I love you so much, too. And um, I know you do. That was a silly response. I know that you do. Um, Where was I? Oh, I've spoken, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many retreats, how many, any, you know, all of that, but I haven't done it at all in the last five years, and the reason I haven't is because I didn't want to. Uh, In the last five years, I have, my husband's had a quadruple bypass and a stroke, actually that happened before five years ago. I've had, I fell and shattered both my knees uh, a couple of years apart, uh, two surgeries on my, on my knees. Um, I, was, I had a heart attack on Valentine's Day in 
2012, and um, and then summer before last, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. The heart attack was no for uh, no mu- no damage to the heart muscle, which is uh, you know a miracle. The breast cancer, at, 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 even though they removed a good portion of my breast, uh, came back stage zero, no further treatment. All glory to God. I, you know, he has more for me to do. I'm not, I don't quite understand, but I do know that I live a life beyond my wildest dreams. I was a terrified little girl in a great big grown-up body when I got here, and I still am at times. And like someone said in the previous meeting, my, um, the, the worst day-to-day in recovery is better than the best day when all I did was fear and eat and puke. Last November, my husband and I were married for 53 years. I, <laughs> I was 19 when we got married, and I thought only old people celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, but I was wrong <laughs> because I'm still a teenager. I'm a wrinkled teenager, but a teenager nonetheless. Um, he is, without doubt, my very best friend. Um, and I just forget that he's a person a good portion of the time because everything's about me, 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 me. But because I work the steps, because the sixth and seventh step are far and away the most important steps to me, and I am co- constantly looking at what needs to be changed in me, almost to a fault, um, he tells me I'm the easy per, easiest person in the world to live with. And he isn't um, high maintenance either. So because of that, here we are, two old folks now watching the Dodgers. And uh, if anybody had ever told me that I'd become a Dodger fan or any kind of a, a sports fanatic, but I am and I'm loving me some Cody Bellinger. I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, let me let me try to get back on topic. Um, yeah, I have two sons, and they are 51 and 48 years old. They each have a child, uh, a boy. They each have a boy and a girl. My oldest granddaughter turned 18 at Christmas. Her cousin Sam turned 16 at the same, roughly the same time. Um, my oldest one's little brother turned 14 in. Um, uh, March and Stella Grace, my baby girl, uh, my youngest, just turned 13. They are the loves of my life. They think I hung the moon. And, well, they don't so much anymore because they're teenagers. They, they still see me and go, Grandma, you know, and they want me to do, I do a, like a fingernail back rub thing, and they, they want that pretty much all the time. And um, they are the loves of my life. Um, except for their dads and their moms. Because when my, when my uh, sons were born, I made a decision that I would love whoever they loved, regardless. Regardless of anything. If they brought home someone, anyone, and said, I love this person, I was going to love them. Because what earthly good would it do me not to? And uh, so instead of bringing just anybody home... They brought home Julie Parks and Jen Parks. And these two women are 
there. I just bought Julie. Julie raised this 18-year-old that's graduating from high school next week, and, and she can go to any school she wants to go to, and, and um, pretty much. And um, I, I walked past a little outfit at Guess, a little shorts, like, what do, you, what do they call those things where it's just a romper, a little romper at Guess, and I walked in, it was $100, <laughs> And I said, do I want to do this? And Buddy says, go ahead, it's your money, because I have my own little fun now. And um, so I bought it for her because I want to thank her for being, for raising those kids. So I got here, and I, uh, I thought I wanted to divorce, and the only reason I wasn't cheating is because I thought I'd get caught. And I had done a few things that were way out of the, you know, out of, out of the norm, a lot of things that went against my morals and my values. But what I learned here is my morals and my values were no match for my disease, and my disease wanted me dead. And so I ate more and I puked more. I started throwing up when I was 17 years old, and and I'm a natural regurgitator. That's going to be on tape. Oh, how lovely. And and I couldn't, um, you know, it wasn't difficult for me to throw up at all. And um, so I started then, and but I didn't. Ever, it never occurred to me that I would be heavier if I didn't. Don't ask me why, but it never occurred to me. So I got up to right around two hundred pounds, throwing up, you know, often. And then I went on a diet, and it was called the um, Miracle Six Meal a Day Diet. I'll tell you what it is after the thing if you want to know. But it's an outside issue, so I won't do it from here. No kidding. So I I got down to about my current size, and all of a sudden, I was getting attention that I had never gotten. I was getting looks from men, offers from men, looks from women. Uh, I was being treated different than I had ever been treated in my whole life. And I didn't want it to stop. And so, but one night, my husband and I went out to dinner uh, with a group of friends to me and Ed's Pizza, and everybody ate a pizza and had, drank beer, and I wouldn't do either one because I was on this diet, and I didn't drink or eat, overeat when I was dieting. And um, I also had a, my eye on one of the guys in this group of friends, and because I knew that my prince was going to come along and save me. There was going to be, you know, somebody that was really cool, not like my kind of hayseed husband who always has a toothpick in his mouth. He's known for that. And um, I don't even notice it, and I don't care. (laughs) I really don't. Because I'll tell you what, no one has ever had my back like Buddy Parks has had my back. No one. And, you know, no one ever will. I fantasize now and again about Cody Bellinger or somebody like him. But um, that that ain't going to happen. But anyway, um, how much more time do I have? Because I can't believe how I'm just going on and on. I do. Okay. All right. Um, okay. <laughs> In fact, my husband tells me I have a, I need a program called On and On and On. <laughs> but um, okay. Again, where was I? Huh. We're at me and Ed's, and I, they said, have a piece of pizza. And I said, oh, no, I can't. I'm on a diet. Just have one. 
just have one slice, they said. So I had a slice, and just have one beer, so I had a beer. And then I ate, you know, you know how much pizza I had, and you know how many beers I had. But when I got home, I was 26 years old. My baby was a year old. I had just come down from 200 pounds. I never lost my baby weight. And um, when I got home, it occurred to me that if I threw up all that food in that booze, that I wouldn't gain any weight from that meal. Well, you can imagine that my six-meal-a-day diet was officially ended that night. And the next morning when I woke up, I ate what I wanted, and then I ate more, and then I ate more, and then I threw up, and then so on and so forth. And uh, I also fell in love with a man that was in that group that night and, and uh, had an emotional affair with him that exceeded any sexual relationship a person could have with a person. <laughs> so in love. And... Um, and uh, I, you know, I acted on it in an emotional way much, much, much more than I would have if, you know, I'd ever crossed the line with him. And um, so, yeah, it was, uh, I, again, I, my, my morals and my values were no match for this disease. And this disease wanted anything I could do to stop the fear and to stop the pain. I lay in bed terrified at night that there would be an accident and the, uh, there'd be an earthquake and the picture would fall off the wall and cut off one of my kids' heads or something. I mean, I, I made up horror stories about what could happen that you guys wouldn't even believe. Today I live a life of pretty perfect freedom from that. I really do. I live a life today of um, comfortably living in the sunlight of the spirit. My, um, I sponsor a handful of people over the, last, <laughs> over the last 37 years, hundreds of people over the last 37 years. My career has been my recovery for the last, you know, for that length of time. Um, a few weeks ago, I'm going to run out of time if I don't like get on with this and quit stalling. Um, a few weeks ago, I was at a women's meeting, uh, not an OA meeting, but a women's group, and and I shared in that meeting, and I was I was so ashamed of myself. I got into shame as I was talking, and I told them so, and they looked at me like I had two heads, like what? And um, so that night, I obsessed about it all day. And then I obsessed about it all night. And then I got up in the morning and I wrote him a letter. And I told him how, you know, much shame I was in for my behavior. And I realized now, you know, and I knew for sure that you guys are saying she always gives out too much information. She's, you know, a weirdo. She's this, she's that. And I just knew all of that was going on. And I said, when I think of you people, I know that that's not true. I know that none of you are thinking those things of me. But this is something deep in me that happens. And when it's triggered, um, it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. So I read this letter, this email back, and I thought, I can't send that. I can't do that to myself. You know, I'm the mama now. I'm the only one that can keep this baby girl alive. God loves me so much he can't take his eyes off me. That's been proven 
day after day for the last 37 years. So I can't, I can't mail this, this letter. And there's a thing that, uh, uh, an acronym that I, I've used for years in, from another program, and it's WAIT. Why am I talking? And for me, that means why am I offering advice or information that's not necessary? Why, why do I need to talk almost ever? Why do I need to insert myself into any of these conversations? Or, you know, because I can fix you in a minute. I know just what's wrong with you, I'll tell you. It's not my business to tell you. And so I, and especially not my business to move my husband's body around and tell him how to think and tell him how to work and tell him how to be a father and any of that. You know, and I'm very, very, very clear on that. So I've been using Wait, Why Am I Talking for years, pretty successfully. So I get through writing this letter and I decide that I'm not going to send it. And the minute I decided I was not going to send it. I had a spiritual experience. And it was my God right beside me saying, baby girl, wait. Why are you talking to yourself like this? Why are you telling yourself these things? And I, and a peace came over me that passes under, surpasses understanding. It truly did. Why are you talking to yourself like this, baby girl? You know better. And so, um, yeah, pretty magical. Pretty magical. And it's remained with me. Um, I've shared it with everybody I sponsor. And, uh, and several of them are using, why are you talking to yourself like this? You know, it's helping them too. Um, really scattered right now. And I just have to say, Connie, I'm in love with you. I'm, I'm telling you what, that was a, that, I have never been moved like I was moved by your share. Never. Holy crap. So, um, so therefore, I'm kind of all over the map. And those who know me know I usually speak better than this. <laughs> but who cares, you know? I get caught up in my own celebrity sometimes. I, I, my, my, my disease thinks I'm Billy Graham and um, that I can save each and every one of you. And uh, holy baloney. So um, anyway, I want to share a little story with you. I have a friend, a man that I would pretty much follow anywhere in the, toward God, a man of God who I adore, and when he was a little boy, when he was about 15, he became deathly ill, and he was hospitalized, and he came from a good, you know, moral upbringing, and his parents had, you know, taken him to church every week and all of that, and he had been involved. And when he was 15, he became deathly ill. It turned out to be a, a, a I won't even go into what the illness is because he's not in this program, but I don't want to give away any information that might lead toward him. Um, he heard the nurses say, um, he may not make it through the nine. And he called, they called his parents. He later had to have a kidney transplant and, you know, there's, I mean, I'm, we're talking deathly ill now. And so he said he heard it and he knew it was true. And he got with God and he got with God in the middle of the night, all night, all night. 
And God spoke to him and said, you got stuff to do, young man. you got stuff to do. And so he, with this treatment and that treatment, whatever, he came out of it. He had a t- kidney transplant. He dedicated his life to, t- to serving others, just like, you know, people that we've heard today. He dedicated his life to that. He got married. He had three little kids, and his kidney failed. And he had to have another kidney transplant, but he couldn't find a donor. They couldn't find a match for him, and they searched everywhere, family members, friends, lists, all of that. And he said his wife didn't know it, but he would go into the bedroom with his little boys, where his little boys were, and he would sob. And he'd, and he'd say to God, or he'd say to the room, I have to, how can I, how can I leave my wife with these three little boys? And, and I've got to be able to, you know, I want to be able to raise my little boys. And a voice said to him at his, at his shoulder, just like mine, you don't think I can raise your boys? I am so grateful for the kind of faith that I have that I know that God can raise my little boys and my little grandbabies, that, um, that he loves me so much he can't take his eyes off of me, that my husband and I have the same kind of, I mean, what we share today I would have never guessed when I got here 37 years ago. What we share today in our, um, we laugh together, we cry together, we pray together. We have our children over every weekend, except that stop now because they're all in high school and they're all, uh, one is, uh, one is uh, not, wouldn't be here today anyway because he's not in the program, but he's over feeding the homeless. And another one, not the homeless, the hungry. The other one is serving in a capacity of taking care of uh, people and providing for his wife and his two children, even though neither one of them went to school, neither one of them went to college. Both of them are great providers. Um, they They are emotionally, sexually responsible adult males, and I give all the credit to Overeaters Anonymous and, and their father because I gave them over to their father when they were 10, 12, 10, 11, 12 years old. You know, I, I finally figured out that I didn't know how to raise a boy to be a man, but maybe their father could. Um, and I gave him to God. <laughs> so every day for the last 37 years, I've gotten closer and closer to my higher power. I have remembered from day one that this recovery requires daily disciplined action on the steps, telling the truth, being honest, being accountable with what I ate, telling the truth if I'm unhappy with what I ate. And as a result, I haven't done any lethal eating in 37 years, but I, I have uh, 37 years of back-to-back imperfect abstinence. And aren't I just about the cutest thing you've ever seen? <laughs> So, um, you know, forgive me if all of that sounded like a muddle, because it sure sounded like a muddle in my head. But I, but you know what? 
God just said, baby girl, wait, why are you talking to yourself like that? Thank you. Um, what do I do? I tell the truth. I call somebody and tell them the truth. Somebody that tr- that I trust. Someone that knows uh, how I live. Someone that can remind me how I live and why I live. Uh, because of all that clapping. Um, I... I have a very, very kind and gentle voice in my head also that says, baby girl, it's going to be okay. This too shall pass. These are only feelings. These are only feelings. You're not stuck with this particular set. I say this to the girls I sponsor too, and, if, and I say to them, and if I were there, I would rock you. And half, most of the time they cry. And I say it to myself. I rock myself and I tell myself that this too shall pass. I promise you, you're not always going to feel the set of feelings that you're having right now. Uh, Yeah, don't kid yourself that after the heart attack, for months after the heart attack, I was like, everything that happened. There's a woman in this room that saw me one day and she said, Chris, you got to do something. I haven't seen you like this. I haven't seen you in that kind of, with, with uh, deer in headlights kind of look. You've got to do something, and you've got to get some help. And I did. Um, yeah, I always ask for help. I always am accountable with, with my stinking thinking as well as my food. How do I know what God wants for me? Uh, why do I do what I'm doing? Let's see. A thought did come to me while you were reading it, and now I can't remember what it was. Um, is is it the job and the people in that uh, in that workplace, or is it a pattern of behavior, your own pattern of behavior for your perhaps your whole life? Is it a place that has that is being triggered? And you could leave there, but you could you will take you with you. Um, that's those are the things I ask the people I sponsor, and those are things that I ask myself: Is this the truth, or is this your triggered little girl telling you how awful you are? You know, I I, I came from a a place um, therapy wise many many years ago. That was bloom where you're planted. Learn all the lessons that you need to learn where you are because if you don't, you're going to take them with you. If you're being abused, I mean physically abused, if, you're, if, it's, re, if it's causing you ill health, then go ahead and get out. <laughs> but, 
but otherwise look within and say what what in me keeps somebody's a, a speaker a few minutes ago said um her sponsor told her if she meets three assholes in a day, then she's the asshole. There was something that was wrong with my this last job, and why I'm still pondering to go back to the job or not, is because I don't know how to to stop when it's time to stop. I'm going to save that kid, and that hurt me a lot. It hurt me so bad to the grandkids that I got to, because this could be ugly. I justified that they were my brother's kids. My brother was an addict, and I told them that at least they have family, at least they have family. And consequently, um, I hurt those children. Here I am saving everybody else's children, but not my grandchildren and my nieces. So it's not all good. Okay, and for either of you, they would like to know if you would like to talk about your Go ahead. Oh, thanks. Um, I was thinking today, will I tell those people that I eat a bowl of popcorn every single day of my life? Yes, I do. Um, I I eat five times a day. Um, I eat a fairly balanced food plan. Uh, There is absolutely no food that I don't eat in, um, in moderate amounts. I eat pretty much anything I want. I just don't want what I used to want. Not by a 55,000-fold. Okay, I just don't want it. I strove through step work for peace with my food, for um, um, peace on the plate, you know? And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I could tell you exactly. I could tell you that on Saturday nights, we always go out and have pretty much anything we want. The rest of the week, I eat like a zoo animal. You know, same thing <laughs> all, all day long. And as a result, the, God's kept me at the same weight for years and years and years and years. Do I have to get specific? No. No, 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 no. <laughs> the little girl that died when she was, that I had since three days old, she loved Animal Planet from like the time she was three and four years old. She refused to eat meat, period. And I'm from the South, and so there's a lot of meat, right? And so I promised her for her birthday to go to the World Hunger and... Um, And so on the way back, because they said not to give up meat completely, but just like three times a week. And so on the way back, here I am with these six kids, and they said, I said, I could do that. And they said, oh, hell no, you can't do that. And I said, you want to bet? Well, I bet them $100 that I could not only do it three times a week, that I could do it seven days a week. So I became a vegan. And because that would have been six hundred dollars, they would have to pay me a hundred, but that would have been six hundred dollars. And 
something happened that a combination of seeing what what we do to the planet and uh, the rainforest and all that kind of stuff. I never ate a piece of meat since. I was first. It was piscatarian. I was a fish. I ate fish, but then probably after two months, I was done with fish, and I don't eat any of that stuff. I'm just cuckoo. Well, I'm just cuckoo. For all those cows and things that I ate all those years. <laughs> Any more? I have a question. Uh, I work in South Elmore with a very difficult population. And um, how do you separate it and not take in the sadness, pain, mental illness, everything that you saw for so many years on your side and not pull it in and integrate it into your life? Well, that that is the tough. Oh gosh, that that is tough because uh, especially when they kill themselves, I wind up replaying it over and over and over. And the truth is, I have a ten-step meeting that I do every single Wednesday since 1997 because I have to do more ten steps than normal. Because especially now that I'm retired and I'm a little more quiet. These kids come back, and, and I'm going through boxes of we can't keep that stuff, and I just couldn't shred them. I just literally a year, and I'm still not done shredding and because those kids are such a part, and then combined with the people in my family that died in the same time free. But I know there's somebody else bigger than me that's going to figure this out, and the lie that I told myself and others is that I have to figure it out. Yeah. And that's bull. I can't. I can't. I haven't seen you in 20 years and just past week I used some, I tore up something you say constantly <laughs> to my niece. Now you're the parent now of this baby girl. <laughs> And you got to keep her alive. I know that's not how you say it, but so many things that you shared over the years, 20 years ago, it just, you know, I, it, I still use it. And uh, so it's wonderful to hear you. Uh, have any of you uh, had to sleep outside of the Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and how, how do you how do you do it? Well, I... Well, I <laughs> sought help, I mean emotional help. I got therapy and continue to when I need to. Um, I don't know any further. Uh-huh. I don't know that I ever have thought about it, to tell you the truth, but I know that I come from a long history of, um, a, I mean, generation after generation of addict, and I know that we're all depressed. We wouldn't be addicts if we weren't depressed. <laughs> and uh, we do whatever whatever it takes to... to um, ease that without killing ourselves and I've done that you know I mean um, 
for instance, I couldn't be in a job where little kids were dying every day. I, my nervous system wouldn't let me do that. I would blow my brains out. So I know what my nervous system can handle. And uh, most of us don't when we get here. Most of us, are, most women anyway, are doing way more than their nervous systems can handle. Or not enough. They're home barefoot and pregnant, and they could be running a, you know, a big company. And so I think we have to find out what it is. I mean, I, I took three or four baths every day of my life for the first probably 10 years I was in the program because that's soothing to me. And that calms my nervous system. And I have, I, uh, somebody told me 25, 30 years ago, uh, the clearest marker of mental health is the ability to self-soothe. And self-soothe is, doesn't mean how much food I can sedate myself with. <laughs> it was all I knew before I got here, but the 12 steps, daily disciplined action on the 12 steps changed that for me. And I, you know, when I need therapy, I go get it. He knew everything I had done. He already knew everything I had done or everything I had fantasized about doing because he was kind of doing it with me. And um, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense to most people, but we were married in 1963, and it became the open marriage kind of decade and that kind of thing. So he knew, you know, and he's never had any problem pointing out handsome guys to me and I've never had any problem pointing out beautiful women. We didn't we didn't I'm not saying we were in swap clubs or anything like that. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying, but he knew and he he's always he loves me. And he intuitively knew that everything I was doing to hurt myself wasn't against him. He t- intuitively knew that. I had a woman I was involved with for years and years and years, and I can't believe I'm going to say this on, on a tape, and we never crossed any kind of sexual line, not once. But he finally came and he says, why don't you two just <laughs> get it on and get it over with? You're obsessed with each other. not you know. So he and I have that kind of really honest communication. And I... I can't see where that can ever hurt. <laughs> Maybe it can. I don't know. Yeah, I was 19 when we got married, Kendall, and I wouldn't wish that on my, on anyone. I was way too young. I was stupid. But somehow, God protected me, and I intuitively picked someone who was spiritually right for me. And some, trust me when I say, some decades have been better than others. And the last two have been the best yet. You said you've got 
12 more minutes, so during this time we're supposed to open it up for pitches, but the pitches should be on the promises and how they came through for you through working the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. We'd like to share about that. I know. Mantras, did you say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the things that you have pulled you through. Like, you, like your soothing tech, I, I don't know what, how to, never mind, I'm just going to stop. The ability to My, 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 uh, dear friend and sponsor just said my Rolodex. I have, you know, all of those, all of those, um, things that I share are just in there. And it's a gift. It's a gift from God. And I say all oh, glory to God and the 12 steps for, for allowing me to remember the truth. You know, I remember Peter Smith. Does anybody remember Peter yeah. Smith? He used to say, um, what did he used to say? Oh, <laughs> remember that we deal with food, cunning, baffling, and powerful, which is the, what is the most important word in that sentence? Remember. Remember. <laughs> And that's the truth about anything. I, you know, God, keep me open. Help, help me. And I have never, ever moaned to God that I haven't felt helped very shortly thereafter. Or at least, you know, within the day. I was laughing again, so something must have happened. Acceptance is love and approval is like and I don't always have to like what I love. If I am waiting for my husband to get different in order to love him, in order to accept him, then shame on me. Shame on me. So um, I began to, I stopped to tolerate something is to say, well, as soon as you get good enough, then I'll love you. To accept something is to say, I love you. Doesn't mean I approve, doesn't mean I like it, but I accept it. This is who he is. He's a hayseed with a toothpick. He's always going to make up words for as long as he lives. Because don't you know he has, he said to my girlfriend and I one day when we were laughing at a word he made up, and he said, okay, so I'm sorry I don't have the verbility that you have. But see, that made me think, 
before program and before knowing that I, I am the only one that, that I can change with the help of God. I can't change any other human. And when I really, really knew that, and for me, again, glory to God in the 12 steps, it was in the first year or two, that I began to see him for who he was. I began to respect him as my son's father. I began to appreciate, when I, you, when I, my knees and my heart and my cancer, I mean, I can't tell you. Some of you can tell them, can't you? Where Buddy was in all of that. He doesn't even like me come and go. I, he wants, he would love to have me by his side all the time. Not to talk or anything, just to know I'm in the room or in the, in the house somewhere or something. He came to me uh, one Sunday night 20 years ago and he'd been watching Mulder and Scully. What was that show? X-Files. X-Files. And he came in and he said, I just figured out what you are to me. And I said, what? And he said, you're my, what was she, what was her name? You're my Scully. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, Mulder just said to her, you're my human, con- human credential. If you love me, I must be okay. Aww. Now, this is also a man that says the dumbest damn things to me and criticizes me. And Jesus, how am I ever going to, you know, remember to whatever? And, and I just, you know, and for the most part, sometimes I say, fuck you. But for the most part, I, you know, I consider the source. And, um, yeah, because if I list a column of all the things that are wrong with him, it's going to all be about looks, weight, youth, sexiness, how well he dances, um, how much verbility he has, how educated, you know, if I made a list of what I wanted, which I tell my girls, wah, 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 what I don't want are my feelings, and what I don't want is to live with the constant criticism of another human being. This man is... Somebody said to me one day, in a, I was speaking at a, at a retreat, and I said that my husband wouldn't let me have a cat because he's there, he, we've had to put cats down or we've, coyotes have eaten cats in our front yard, and he's done. He doesn't want any more, okay? He cleans up the mess and cries and me and whatever. And so this woman said, well, I just wouldn't, couldn't be married to a man that wouldn't let me have a cat. I said, well, I can appreciate that, but uh, this list on the other side is he has my back in every conceivable way. He's provided me every single thing that's on my back and in my mouth for the last (laughs) 53 years. He loves my sons as much as I do and my daughters and my grandchildren. What? I mean, he's... Nobody's worth marrying. <laughs> nobody is, are they? I mean, nobody is. I, God, now I'm going off on a soapbox, but I just the other day I read there's no perfect marriages, just two imperfect people working out the difficulties together, deciding to work out the difficulties. And shit, we've had plenty. Well, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Now I'm going to shame myself for this. Wait, 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 baby girl. Why are you talking to yourself? Just say that again. 
Acceptance is love. Approval is like. And I don't always have to like what I love. She has to sign it. Yeah, sign first. Just yeah. put your name. That's it. Okay. This is awkward. Leslie Compulsive Reader. Hi, I just wanted to say that um, the little uh, baby girl, I use that, and I don't know if that's, and I heard that at a retreat, um, but it's it's made such a huge impact on me because those negative thoughts come up so often, especially with work. And it's like, and I'm so grateful for the ability to hear them and to, and to counter it with that positive voice, you know, the baby girl. And um, I just got a lot of hope. And I haven't been to an OE meeting in like three months because I'm a new mom. And um, I have multiple programs and it's really difficult. And I just feel so incredibly blessed. And you work? Yeah, full-time mom, yeah. Well, no, I'm a full-time worker outside of the home, and then I'm a mom, too. You're a full-time worker and a mom. Yeah. Then your nervous system is in double jeopardy. Yeah. So what you need to do is get with all the rest of the lovers in this program who could say, I know, baby girl. I know, it's really tough, but this too shall pass, and that baby is going to be 50 before you know it. (laughs) And you don't have to put up with that bullshit. You can say, ouch, when you're hurt. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> we have two more minutes before we wrap. Would anybody like to do a two-minute pitch? Any final words of... Oh, thank you. Do you need me to sign anything? Yes. Okay. Use the mic, sign it. Just pr- sign your name, that's it. My name is Elle. I'm a compulsive overeater, a bulimic, and a compulsive overexerciser. Hi, Elle. And this is my grand sponsor. I don't know you personally very well, but uh, your recovery trickles down, and I'm thankful for it. Please don't shame yourself Uh for what you said, because I needed to hear that about you and Buddy. Like, um, I... I came here in a really bad place because so many of the promises like looked like they were starting to come true and now they look like they're unraveling and um, like falling apart and in recovery I'm open and transparent and connected to my feelings so it's happening like in front of everyone. And uh, one of the first meetings I was in, I didn't want to see anyone. I wanted to isolate. I wanted to be at home and not come back out to meetings until I was the poster girl for OA again. And, um, but I, I was in a stag meeting. And so I noticed that this is mixed company, so I won't say any of the things that I said there. But I was so grateful to be in a stag meeting because there were things I needed to talk about. Chris, that like... Um, I'm just so thankful because I need you guys. I I need you more than I need, like, the food plan and um, to tell you about how long I exercise today because I do those things for a reason. 
Um, and there are reasons like like what you were talking about with Buddy. I needed to know that there's other people that have a hard time in their marriages. And like, um, I'm about to get married, except we're, we might be breaking it off. It was over things like you were talking about with Buddy. Because he has too many tattoos and not very good manners. But he's got my back and he loves my boys. And it's like, oh shit, what if that's enough? And then, like, enough? Isn't that what we do with food and exercise? It's never enough. And the baby girl stuff, like, Tish tells me that all the time. So please, like, when you said, oh, no, I'm going to shame myself about that, I wanted to just do a megaphone at a Dodgers game and say, <laughs> no, thank you. I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a wonderful meeting. It is now time to close the session. Please stand, join hands as we close with the serenity prayer.